Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hey everyone, this is Mikey McGovern with another edition of New Books in Medicine. In last month's interview, we traced the history of genetic counseling as a profession in the U.S. with Alexander Minister. Today, we move into the present, or very recent past, to investigate how genetic knowledge affects the dynamics of healthcare today. Despite unequivocally having the highest GDP per capita for a nation of its size, the U.S. lingers somewhere in the 30s when ranked against other nations on infant mortality. Why have we been as of yet unable to put our biomedical developments into practice? One good answer is that the biggest problems don't require a technological fix, but rather a social one. In Saving Babies? Question mark, the Consequences of Newborn Genetic Screening, published in 2012 by the University of Chicago Press, Stefan Timmermans and Mara Buchbinder don't address this paradox head-on. Such a study is clearly out of scope for uh, such a compact and deep work, but they do focus on how the promising technology of genetic screening, while undoubtedly saving lives, introduces complications for families that did not exist previously. The book is an ethnographic exploration of an important public health effort that stands out for its clarity and depth of analysis. By not simply taking for granted the benefits afforded by newborn screening, the authors probe deeply into its consequences, 
Intended and Unintended. The book is the result of extended study on a Californian pediatric genetics clinic in which the authors conducted follow-up interviews with families whose children tested positive for one of the 32 genetic diseases recommended in the standard suite of testing. Of course, these testing requirements vary by state, as all things do in the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, in particular, the book traces the entanglements of families as they mitigate uncertainty about their child's future, often resulting in tortuous diagnostic and therapeutic odysseys. Moreover, although all public health measures do come down to matters of efficiency, mandatory screening does not directly help those who the healthcare system already overlooks. In fact, it might be understood as creating new kinds of stratification in health. So, while screening certainly does save lives, its social impact is profound. More and more families experience genetic disorders than those whose children actually have them because of the uncertainty inherent in the clinical situation. In my conversation with Stefan, we touched on many of these issues and more, and I greatly enjoyed learning more about the study and savoring the depth of this work. I hope you will enjoy our interview as well. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Mikey McGovern, uh, and I'm here today speaking with Stefan Timmermans, professor of sociology at UCLA, about his book, Saving Babies, or Saving Babies, question mark, the consequences of newborn genetic screening. Stefan, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, great pleasure to be here. So as we kind of just discussed, I, I like to start these interviews off by having uh, our interviewees chart their career and sort of what led them to uh, the present work. So if you could do this, that for us, that'd be great. So I'm originally from Belgium, and I did an, uh, my undergraduate degree in sociology there. And uh, in Belgium, I became very interested in one of the books I read in a methods class on death and dying. And I did an honors thesis on um, terminal care for nursing patients. And then I was going to do a one-year um, post um, a BA degree for one year at the University of Minnesota, but I really liked um, the, the U.S. educational system, particularly the focus on mentoring, so I decided to stay on. And by then, my interest had sort of shifted and crystallized into uh, medical topics and science studies related topics, and I'm always trying to work on the, the binary, on the, on the edges of these two. And uh, I did. Uh, I, I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana to do my PhD work with Lee Starr and Andy Pickering, and there I worked on um, resuscitations in emergency departments, trying to see the where do resuscitation techniques come from, where does the belief that we can um, respark a dying body and bring it back to life um, originate? How did the technologies? Um, form and then see, did an ethnographic study of how these technologies are implemented in emergency departments, looking at when um, a resuscitation is in progress. How do you, how and when do you decide to stop the effort? When do you decide that enough is enough? Because most people actually end up dying in emergency departments. Um, after that, I am actually already starting in Illinois, working with Lee Star. I became interested in standards and evidence-based medicine, and I worked with a, a then visiting professor. Or, um, I'm not sure he was a professor at the time. He might have been a graduate student at the time, Mark Burke, and we wrote on standardization and evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. And... 
after that, I, um, I started working at Brandeis University, and there I did a, um, a, an ethnographic study all more in the dead and dying related area of uh, forensic medicine, looking at how forensic pathologists distinguish between homicide, suicide, natural death, and accidental death. Then I moved to LA, and um, after uh, finding my bearings, um, I started the the newborn screening study and um, this project initially started as a methods project and actually mm. the, the newborn screening aspect of it was quite coincidental I was I wanted to do a study with a group of colleagues who do conversation analysis basically form of linguistic sociology where you look very carefully at um, how language is being used and I wanted to bring the ethnographic component and see whether we could integrate both of these methodologies and we needed a site and I went to a mm. talk in a center about newborn screening and I said oh maybe that's a good area and so we contacted some of the people who were working um, cl- clinicians who were working in this area and they were, they were open for us to um, to do a study and from the very first observations what we were doing we were working in a um, newborn screening clinic meaning that a large part of um, new parents who had a positive newborn screen something was something was flagged with the newborn screening they were sent to to particular centers and we were working at one of these centers in the very first observation I, I sort of Im- almost immediately put the methodology part aside because we became <laughs> so ex- absolutely intrigued and fascinated by the drama that newborn screening brought about and the drama was that, and it was already present in the very first case, and if you read the book afterwards, you can see how much that became one of the major themes of the book. The drama was that these babies looked just perfectly normal. They looked like, you know, somewhere a little funny looking, somewhere a little, you know, active, somewhere a little bit more. More. Most of them were sleeping. They were they were held by their parents. Many were like, they were newborn. They were a couple of days, couple of weeks old. And the doctor came in and basically said to this very first patient that we saw, and we saw this over and over again in other interactions, you know, this newborn screening uh, test flagged something suspicious about your baby, and it could be something really serious, and we're going to see whether it, whether it is actually really serious, but there's a possibility we don't find out. And if it is serious, it could be very serious, it could be life-threatening, but at this point we don't really know. And so this this moment of uncertainty that these families had to grasp with, with a baby that looked perfectly fine, who looks no symptoms whatsoever, but a test that flagged something suspicious and that could mean that could really set the life course for the child. Very um, striking and important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating that it started that way. Because I was as soon as you said that it started as a you know, a kind of methods experiment. I was thinking, I didn't really remember much linguistic sociology in forming this book. <laughs> no, and so so I we, this came out of an NSF grant, and the, um, the, the, the co-PI, he was the more of the linguistic sociologist, and he sort of distanced himself from it. But the really good thing he did, besides helping write the grant and all the support and advice he gave, is he hired um, an anthropology... A research assistant to help us with the, pro, the 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 process of data gathering, and that was Mara Buchbinder. And mm-hmm. so, um, Mara and I then um, worked out the rest of the story. So, mm-hmm. 
And how is this book working? You know, how, how is the interaction of working with a collaborator on this book as opposed to just sort of taking it fully in your own direction? Um, you know, it's, I actually really enjoy working with collaborators. I feel, I mean, I, I'm quite confident that I can do these things on my own, but I, <laughs> I, I feel that, um, if I have a collaborator, it brings other things out of me and it pushes me in particular ways. And so this, it's sort of like when you're in a relationship with somebody, and in, to some extent you're in an intellectual relationship with somebody. And in a relationship, always somebody is more meticulous and the other one is a little bit more crazy loose. And it's sort of <laughs> in the same way if you have these intellectual collaborations. And in this kind of collaboration, um, I was definitely um, the one who was maybe a little bit more on the creative side trying to do trying to do original things. Um, um, and then Myra was much more the person who was trying to be keeping me grounded and making sure that everything we said can be double checked and triple checked and we found patterns in the data. So she was, so it was a, it was a very productive way in terms of feeding off each other and, and learning from one another. Mm-hmm. And what's nice about the book, I think is that it really does kind of, it does maintain this really nice ethnographic sense to it. There's a lot of emphasis on narrative, and it's really nice the extent to which you let uh, a lot of your subjects really speak and kind of weave the story together through these narratives. But obviously it's grounded then by a lot of really rigorous analysis of a <laughs> quite a large set of, um, of interviews and follow-ups. Like what was, the, what was the scope of the study that you did? So the scope of the study was that we... Um so when the when the families were contacted by the newborn screening program and sent to the clinic, we would be there on their on their first visit, and if they came back, we would try to catch them every subsequent visit as mm-hmm. well. And then we also um, so we and the clinic only met one afternoon a week. So we we saw these um, patients in the afternoon, and then at the end of the day, there was a a staff meeting where the staff would sit around the table and discuss all the cases because there were three, four geneticists seeing different patients at different at different times and, and not all newborn screening patients. It was, it, was a, it was a diverse clinic. And so we attended also the, the staff meeting, which was very interesting mm-hmm. because the way that the clinicians talk to the family is often very different from the way that they present the same case to their colleagues and zoom into what they think are the the, the bottlenecks and the pressing points. Um, and then we did follow-up interviews with the with the families, interviewing them in their home and seeing what they um, how they made sense of the situation, how they incorporated this potential danger in many cases, in some cases actual danger, because in some of the kids that we fought um, uh, developed symptoms and they became sick. And so these people were, were on a very different trajectory. They were having right. to reconcile themselves with, um, um, you know, the, the, the prospect of having a child with disabilities or special needs. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So in a way, you kind of, you did follow a lot of these patients along what you characterize in the book or perhaps also what uh, policymakers uh, that you discuss in the book call uh, the diagnostic odyssey. Yes. So one of the rationales for doing newborn screening is that you're going to try to, you screen the entire population for rare conditions in the hope that you can catch them right at birth. And so what happens if you don't have a screening program is these babies develop symptoms 
and they are sent from one doctor and to the other doctor and they're sent back home and it takes months and months before you find out and by then often damage has been done that is that is unrepairable mm-hmm. and so the idea behind a newborn screening program is that you catch the, the, these affected children before they get sick mm-hmm. and um, and and so what we find is that for even if you do a screening program is that this the when you screen for rare conditions, um, you're going to find many more patients to come to your attention than you would get if you just were working in a clinic and you were looking for asymptomatic patients mm-hmm. because the screen is going to pick up metabolic outliers and genetic outliers that don't necessarily lead to disease where patients might remain asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. And so... These patients can, are instead of putting on a diagnostic um, odyssey, they can be uh, sent on a therapeutic odyssey where it takes uh, months and months and months before you find out what exactly, how exactly the disease is going to manifest it in, in this particular patient and what uh, treatments are appropriate. So we sort of traded the, the, some of the, the, the big disadvantages of the diagnostic odyssey for some uh, more therapeutic odyssey here. Mm-hmm. And this is something you kind of discuss uh, toward the end of the book when yeah. you really kind of take up, I guess, in a way, not purely normative strain, but really try to address the question head on of whether genetic screening uh, saves lives. And you sort of grapple with um, the way people react to um, false positives. So and that sort of seems to be a big um, it, it, it's a big kind of disruptor in the lives of um, those patients' families. And I, I was just wondering, because you characterize it um, kind of relating it to breast cancer patients mm-hmm. and how they sort of tr- feel about a false positive and how they um, how they treat it and how they also uh, use that as a way um, to either be willing or not willing to participate in further medical research. So what did you I don't know, what did you experience about um, pit families that uh, had uh False positives. So, so, so I have to correct you here because it's not exactly false positives. To put the families that we're describing are people who are between a true positive and a false positive, but they're not mm-hmm. really a false positive because okay. it's a false positive. Then you know what it is. Yeah, you know it was nothing. Mm-hmm. So just you know it was a false signal. And a true positive, you know what it is. You have the disease. What we found in the book was this situation where people went through months and months of uncertainty where it's possible, so they had some metabolic values out of range. And the question was, was this really truly disease or is this just a milder form of normal mm-hmm. or a milder form of disease that's not going to become symptomatic? Mm-hmm. And so it's not exactly a false positive because if, if it's a false positive, then you're done with it. It's actually this prolonged period of not knowing. So what we call in the book, the, these are patients in waiting. They're yes, yes. Sort of betwixt and between, between health and between disease, between a true positive and between a false positive. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, go ahead. And so... To, to, to come to the, the analogy with breast cancer is that one of the really remarkable things. So we had people who, in this study, who described that they went through hell. You know, we had a father who said, I basically was ready to lock my daughter up in her room 
till she was five because there was this 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 uh, understanding in in the in the medical community that for this particular condition, if you survive to five, you were probably going to be fine. So he was willing to completely isolate her for five and not having anybody see her or. T- I mean, there and and he was very concerned about. Um, even getting to know his daughter because he did not want to get too attached and then lose her um, and losing them that she would be she would be dead mm-hmm. um, and so there, so people went through hell for some of these these um, anxieties and um, concerns and and threats of disease that were imposed on them through the newborn screening program but still nobody told us that they were that they regretted that their child had been um, screened. Mm-hmm. And so that's really puzzling. I mean, if you have gone through this extraordinary, devastating emotional experience where your entire life is put on hold, and children are very important in, 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 our, in our society, and being a good parent is very important for people. So, so all of that has been um, called into question, and still everyone was, in, was um, um, okay or was even happy with, with screening. And people even explicitly told us, we went through hell, but I'm still happy that, we, that these screening programs exist. So there's a puzzle. And so the, the reason, the way that we hypothesize that this puzzle is being resolved is that um, what clinicians do when they inform these families that they have... Um, um, that is the red flag and there's the possibility of disease is they um, create this crisis in the, in the family but then as time passes and in, the, in the, while the time passes they do lots of follow up testing and most of this remains inconclusive but since the child does not deteriorate or doesn't show any symptoms they more or less come to the conclusion that it's probably nothing to worry about so in the end the child gets a Although it's a, still a little bit conditional, but it's, the child gets more or less a, a clean bill of health. So you have imputed a danger, installed a danger, and then you slowly take it away. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the system is working. So even though people go to this traumatizing experience, they feel like this was um, worthwhile. And they're also, you know, they go to the clinic and... These these parents of, of of newborn screening patients in for again for about ninety percent of the of the of these families they have children that are completely asymptomatic so there's no no signs of it but they're surrounded in the waiting room in the different um, um, patient rooms by families because this is a pediatric genetic clinic who are who have children who have a very serious disabilities and uh, dysmorphic features and so they see what's going on around them and, and they, they see how it could be and they wonder while they were sitting in the waiting room are we going to be just like these other families so the, the, phenomenal, the phenomenology the experience of being a parent of a positive newborn child often it, it's the, 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 the danger of disease of disability of disruption in, in family life is very close by mm-hmm. and, and, and so to have that taken away they, if the if you believe the promise of newborn screening, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, that you can actually prevent the onset of these diseases, then they see, they think, well, what we have gone through, it's worthwhile compared to what some of these other people might not have to go through because of a screening program. Mm-hmm. And the doctors are aware of this as well. The doctors describe these families who are patients in waiting as the collateral damage of newborn screening. Mm-hmm. They're sort of swept up in the uh, the screening program, they they 
um, experience the negative effects of it. They have they have their these first weeks or months or even year of their child's life um, thrown into turmoil. But if the rest of if there if there's even a possibility that some lives could be saved, it might be. Um, worthwhile for them. So there's some kind of rationalization process. And I think uh, Robert Aronovich has made a similar kind of argument about breast cancer. It's like, you know, you impose a danger, you make it look very a medically uh, authoritative danger, mm-hmm. and then you provide people with a particular kind of solution. And even if it wasn't worth it, you know, it sort of adds to this narrative that medicine is... is um, helping us it's it's helping even if it wasn't necessary in this specific instance sure yeah yeah it's, it's it's even as though as you gain more and more knowledge that knowledge the way it's able to kind of whittle down uncertainty is in effect kind of uh at least as a social phenomenon healing right it's stripping away the possibilities of risk that have yes. their concomitant psychological effects yes so. these parents when they come into the into these doctors offices for the very first visit they're extraordinary captive audience so one of, because I'm a sociologist one of the questions that I often get is so weren't any of these families protesting or disengaging mm-hmm. or calling into question the medical authority to and we didn't see that at all. Huh. We saw it in one part. It was one exception in our study. And there was a father There was a father whose own father was a physician and had lots of medical people in his family. And they basically mm-hmm. uh, offered the counterbalance. But all the rest of the doctor, all the rest of the families were very focused and very, and very compliant with what the, um, uh, the, the geneticist recommended and the follow-up tested, even if though, even though some of these tests were extraordinarily invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this is also, these are rare, very, very rare conditions. And so you, even if you Google them, there's very little out there, and what's out there are the worst-case scenarios. So the doctor in this particular instance has the floor. There's not that, and these are experts they they consult with the other experts on the disease across the uh, across the globe because it's not even a national issue it's like an international dispersion of expertise so there's a very there's a tremendous imbalance in terms of information the doctor really knows it which is almost like reminiscent of the 60s and 70s with um, a form of medicine which right now with consumerism it's there's lots of countervailing um, information streams for uh, patients when they go and listen to doctors and there's much more of an opportunity. But in this specific instance, because they're newborns and the parents usually have very little experience with this, because pediatricians don't know anything about these disorders, um, the, the geneticists really maintain all the knowledge. So this also contributes to mm-hmm. the particular um, social process playing out in the way that everyone feels good about it even though it was a, a pretty much a, for some of the people was one, one of the most upsetting and difficult experience of their life yeah the prospect of then this, this newborn child being at risk for developing all these disorders or maybe for dying young mm-hmm. yeah. there's a lot of things I could ask you about following up on that sure. but one, things that, one of the things I'm interested in to maybe provide a, a thread of continuity between these interviews I've been doing sure. is I talked uh, I talked to my last interview um, 
to uh, Alexander Stern at uh, University of Michigan, who's written about um, the history of genetic counseling. Yeah. So you've been kind of using these terms, doctors and then geneticists, um, you know, kind of not, not necessarily like interchangeably, sure. but you've raised both of those. So I wanted, I wondered uh, if you could kind of delve into what the different, you know, the different roles there are in kind of um, medical advising and research and how those kind of play out. Because in the book, I, I do recall a lot of these, uh, you, you talk about the kind of workshop where uh, doctors discuss cases, but I don't see also a lot of the kind of the more, um, I guess the labor that would be more related to emotional labor and genetic counseling on the part of people who are non-physician, um, like expert practitioners. So yeah. I was wondering if you could unpack that a bit for me. So the person who really runs the program is a nurse practitioner. Oh, really? And huh. so she does all the coordination of care. She talks, she brings, she contacts the families sets up appointments with the clinic. She's their main person of contact, and she is the one who coordinates with the four or five geneticists that we followed. Um, and she, so whenever it's a newborn screening case, she is always present. And then there are, the, in, this, in the place where we studied, there were two genetic counselors, and they can come in into the, into the um meeting and the consultation but often they didn't because mm. they were like I said there were three four geneticists seeing patients at the same time and they weren't always needed in the newborn screening cases mm-hmm. um, so it were the geneticists the clinical geneticists who did most of the of the counseling and then there's another division of labor with the social worker because they're the I mean, especially if the child becomes symptomatic, um, there's a lot of uh, services and a lot of tacit knowledge about how to access these services that these parents need to become, get up to speed very quickly because there's only a three-year period that they have the most access to services uh, because that's the way the the um, uh, mental uh, retardation um, health services are organized this is, this is a three year, the first three years of the life are considered the most cr- critical and, and so these people need to be plugged into that system as quickly as possible and so the social worker did a lot of that kind of emotional uh, um, work I mean this is something that um, genetic counselors are not necessarily as attuned to but Again, a lot of the experience for families is not just dealing with this idea that their child might be dying or at risk for mental retardation, but it's also making sure that the the insurance company pays for the visit, that the insurance company will pay for dietary treatments, which are not uh, regarded Mm. like as um, drugs or or medical devices, is more regarded as vitamins. And so you often, if it was an HMO, the, the geneticist, the nurse practitioner, and the dietitian and the uh, social worker had to be on the phone and try to work with the with, with the one person who could make the decision to, to allow that. And then there's a whole bunch of services that are uh, early intervention services that are um, that need to be tapped and that also require tremendous energy for these families to to get into. But so the so the so the doctors did a lot of the genetic the geneticists did a lot of the genetic counseling aspect of the visit. Mm-hmm. And they had very different approaches to this. There were doctors who set an agenda at the beginning and then sort of went through everything and then asked for questions and other ones that were much more loosely organized. But there was, there was very much in the site where we, we, where we studied, there was, there was a lot of um, um, equity between the genetic counselors and the doctors and the geneticists in the sense that genetic counselors would remind the doctors of what was at stake and, and, and they would debate... Mm-hmm. 
um, whether you know whether to do additional testing before they would see the patients, and I mean they usually had a plan of action. And, and the, the geneticists and the genetic counselor were trying to be on the fir- on the same page before they went into there. So the geneticists that we studied did a lot of the counseling aspects of, of, of the case. So there was not a separate genetic counselor, geneticist, social worker, dietitian. <laughs> they went in as a team and the geneticist usually spoke most and then the genetic counselor sort of reinforced or added some some um, elements if, the, if she or he thought that the doctor was, uh, that the geneticist was forgetting about certain, point, certain mm-hmm. points. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Now I wanted to, speaking of kind of you know, these sort of shifting uh, labor roles and hybrid positions. I wanted to ask a question about standards mm-hmm. and how uh, some of uh, the, one of the chapters in particular in this book kind of relates to some of the earlier work that you've done on standards in medicine. Mm-hmm. So in the chapter on uh, shifting disease ontologies, mm-hmm. you kind of talk about thresholds and the really difficult problem of pinning down these uh, inborn metabolic disorders that you can find through screening. And it's really interesting because in a way, this idea of newborn genetics screening, um, even for not, not just, you know, sequencing genomes, but just screening for certain identifiable tests is kind of like the, if not ultimate, a very, uh, you know, kind of big expression of standardized medicine. Mm -hmm. It's something that's accessible to, um, at least, you know, most Americans who have a childbirth in a hospital. And really, it sort of, it does represent the actualization of a drive to, um, you know, have some sort of care across the board that can identify public health issues that might affect the population at large. And that's all really uh, great. But the reality of it is that these disorders are really much more messy than a genetic test can identify. And so I wanted to, I wanted to see if you had anything to expound upon with like kind of the, you know, sort of second stage of trying to pin down the diagnosis and what some of the factors involved are. Okay, so I was th- thinking you were going one direction and none of your questions sort of viewed a little bit at the end, <laughs> a little bit in a different direction. So let me just talk a little bit about the shifting ontologies yeah. uh, aspect of, of, of this. So indeed, one of the interesting aspects of, of um, newborn screening is that in the U.S. healthcare context, it is a quasi-universal program. Right. Almost every baby in this country um, gets screened for these rare genetic conditions. And that's really remarkable in the context of um, the U.S. healthcare system where almost nothing is guaranteed unless you make it till the age of 65 and Medi- Medicare kicks in and then there are health services for you available. But before 65, there's very little that is universal. But here's one thing that is really uh, universal. And what's also remarkable is that it's a public health program. It could be a commercial program where the people who opt for screening and are willing to pay for it, they could just um, order the tests just like we now have um, uh, court banking and we have, we have other optional Issues that people can decide when they when they give birth, um, but so this is a this is a public health program, and this and, then, and then this was contested in terms of the history of newborn screening, but it's, it's and with it comes the idea that it is a standardized; it should be the same across um, the entire. Uh, nation, and the reason that we had the expansion of newborn screening in 2006 was exactly because of these differences of 
conditions being screened for between different states because the decision to screen is a state's responsibility and inevitably we would have states that screen more than others and then inevitably because of that you would have have a baby that was born in a state in a state that didn't screen for particular kind of conditions and if they had just been born in a, in a neighboring state they would have probably been picked up by newborn screening so mm-hmm. these were very dramatic stories that caught a lot of attention yeah. of the 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 policymakers but with a standardized screening program so even if you do it across the, the country and you screen for the same kind of conditions one of the unintended consequences and unintended only in retrospect because once you look at the history we have lots of instances in which that already had been happening in screening programs but it also manifested itself in newborn screening is that once you screen an entire population for rare conditions you're going to find that the diseases that you thought you were screening for are going to manifest themselves in very different forms and shapes than you thought existed. And the reason why you are mistaken about this is that your knowledge base up until the screening program where only the patients were symptomatic. Mm-hmm. So they all had the disease. And they had, and your entire treatment program, your diagnostic regime, your guidelines, your cutoff points, everything you know about the disease is based on a symptomatic population. Mm -hmm. But when you screen the population, you find people who have values that don't necessarily correspond to what the diseased population um, has that you, knew, that you knew before, but also don't really look like the normal population. They're sort of in between. And so the question is, do you, what are you going to do with these people? Because maybe they don't really have the disease, but if, you, if, they, if they do have the disease, you better take it seriously because here you have the opportunity to catch them before they develop the disease. But if they don't really have the disease, you might actually harm them by imposing treatments on them that might be um, you know, deprive them from it because we're looking at metabolic disorder, so deprive them of uh, essential uh, nutrients. So, what is very interesting, and this was the advantage of doing this study of a three year period, is that the geneticists that we were studying, their understanding of several of the key diseases changed over time. So, there's this disease that they refer to as MCAT, MCADD, mm-hmm. and it started off as a very homogeneous kind of disease but then later on people decided that actually there were probably variants of the disease and there were more benign and more serious variants and I mean this is and it's still controversial I mean uh, there are geneticists who say every MCAT is serious and they're still saying that but there are other ones that said because of the experience we have with the screening program there are probably um, instances where people can you know go through most of their life as an MCAT patient and never develop the typical MCAT um, symptoms. So, and, and this is, I mean, and this happened with an, another condition that we look at in the book, hyperprolinemia, which was picked up as one of the conditions that the screening program screened for, but then later was decided it was not really a disease at all. It was just like an, 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 an uh, biochemical abnormality that has very little cl- clinical consequences, if any. And there are other conditions that are, um, um, controversial, like 3MCC, I think was one of the ones, if I remember correctly, um, where there was some debate whether this was still a serious, whether this even qualified as a disease, and whether we even should screen for these kind mm-hmm. of conditions. So, because of its encounter or because of being um, um, 
included in in the in the expanded newborn screening these conditions change our entire understanding of what the disease is has now changed mm-hmm. our understanding what mcat is has um, changed and actually in, in mcat it also was supposed to only get go in certain kinds of populations but then we found oh no other populations have mcat as well we just didn't it wasn't maybe it wasn't picked up or we did, they were never rendered visible or maybe it was not diagnosed because we associate with a particular ethnic group mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that raises really interesting issues in the epistemology of medicine right yeah it tends to be more focused on the negative on on disease it's my favorite uh, one of my favorite quotes goes from uh, George Tangiem talking about how the uh, I think I believe it goes that the uh, the abnormal, the pathological, is you know while logically posterior, is psychologically you know at the foreground, whereas the normal is sort of you know kind of residing off in the background, and seemingly you know kind of inactive. But in this case, as soon as you have a broader population of patients, um, normality really comes to kind of redefine everything that was known about the disease. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it affects you know. Everything what you do to these families, and that affects everything you you communicate to peers, and so the entire it's like you you there was a there was this 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 placid lake and you threw a rock in it and now it's everything is reverberating in different directions. Mm-hmm. So it's not only that individual families are caught into this newborn screening net or web, even if they have. Um, even if they don't belong in there, but now our entire knowledge base, our genetic knowledge base is being changed because we have we shift from an individual somatic picture to a population picture. Mm-hmm. And the population of the population passport of the disease is very different as the individual passport. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of populations, I sort of wanted to kind of direct uh, attention toward an area of the book that... And the, the book does address it, but uh, the kind of... Um, I mean, how, in a way, genetic screening does uh, kind of manifest the same uh, asymmetries and inequalities that are present in the American healthcare system, Mm -hmm. particularly in issues between race and class. So in, I believe, the chapter uh, where you ask, um, does genetic screening save lives, you talk about kind of the later, uh, when when, uh, patients are diagnosed much later with the condition and how, you know, the kind of, you know, the seriousness of the condition compounds because it wasn't caught earlier. So do you see... um, Despite the fact that we have this, you know, quasi-universal screening, is there is are the same kinds of you know inequalities and stratifications that affect the rest of the population present, and do they affect the treatment and outcomes of newborns? So they are and they aren't. So in some ways, you know, um, you know, we, we sociologists use the term fundamental causes of diseases, and this is like the the really the, the, the if you were to be able to change poverty structures in the United States, you probably would get, again, you would have thrown a huge rock in the lake and the entire, the, the entire disease profile of the population would change mm-hmm. uh, dramatically. And so there is a way in which um, um, race and class compounded um, um, affect the outcomes of newborn screening. Um, but there are also ways in which newborn screening itself create new Forms of stratification, and so what? So so to so the the uh, the book's title is saving babies with a question mark, and you know when a sociologist or or or, or a social scientist um, has a question mark in the title, the answer is usually no. Yeah. But in our case, it's a little bit more um, qualified than that. So what? Uh, what I say? So so the the real 
public health rationale for doing this universal newborn screening uh, program is that we can catch these babies early on. We can identify them early on as at risk for developing disease, and then we can intervene, and then we're going to be able to um, save their lives by doing this, rather than having them deteriorate to a point where it's going to be too late and then um, having to deal with um, a severely disabled or a dying child. Um, and so if you think about the way that we're now doing the screening, the, this promise of saving babies is only partially fulfilled. So mm-hmm. it, first of all, it depends a lot on the actual condition you're screening for, because some of these conditions, even if you know at birth that you have this condition, you're actually there's actually very little you can do about uh, changing the, the, the course of the disease. There's, there's no treatments available or... Um, um, it, it's even, you know, even at knowing in the first couple of days, it's already too late. I mean, it's just, just the window of opportunity to intervene is very disease uh, dependent. MCAT example that I gave earlier, that's a very, that's actually a, a disease where the, the window for opportunity is actually very favorable. You can mm. um, um, change the diet of the child and then actually offset the disease that way. Um so that's the first set of factors. It has to do with the, the actual disease. And so there's a stratification already based on the disease situation. And then the second one is that newborn screening on its own doesn't really save lives. What you need is you need people who connect the dots. You need, and these people are, the doctors think or the geneticists think they are these people, but in fact it are the parents who are this. So you need somebody who is extraordinarily vigilant and watches their child, and whenever a child develops the signs of um, a, a pending crisis, interprets these correctly and rushes the child to an emergency department or, or to a medical care center to, to act on this. So there's a lot of invisible work that is being obliterated with the phrase... Uh, newborn screening saves lives. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work on which that the newborn screening life-saving potential rests that is often unacknowledged because it's not reimbursable, it's not um, um, uh, trainable, it's just part of the, the responsibility of, of parents. But of course, I want to give the impression that saving lives would just depend on the, pres- on the parents or even on the parents and the disease they have. Then it also happens happens to, to depend to, for a large extent on these pre-existing structures of the healthcare um, field because, as I mentioned before, newborn screening is a public health program, but the care for the ch- children enters just a normal healthcare system. That's yeah. the, so there's a, a boundary between public health and healthcare. And so all these inequities and difficulties of accessing care that we are very familiar with for any kind of condition, they, are stu- they, they gradually erode the life-saving potential of newborn screening as well. I already mentioned that um, for some of the diets, dietary supplements, um, many of the HMOs do not uh, reimburse them and they're not obligated to do this. So it's on a case-by-case basis Mm. and some parents just give up. Yeah. And then there are other instances where through the child you can actually uh, diagnose the mother. So that is uh, uh, the the maternal disease. And um, these the children might have health insurance, but the, the, the mothers might not have health insurance. So again, that's like a missed opportunity to take advantage of the knowledge that you have gained. Right. So, there's, so there's a lot of stratification that occurs 
in the, in the healthcare system and there's this handover from public health to the medical care system. So, right. the, I mean, when we say screening saves lives, when, the, the more appropriate way of saying this, but it's of course not as catchy, is that newborn screening offers an opportunity to save lives. And it does save lives. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we have examples in the book and there's lots of other examples. What we're trying to do in the book is to actually show the full spectrum of the effects it has and also mm-hmm. show what I mentioned before as the collateral damage of people are caught up into um, the the potential of of, um, of a disease in their children and then also the way that these, these families make sense of it. And then there's also a group of families for whom newborn screening doesn't really make that much of a difference because their child is on this pathway to disability anyway. But then there's a smaller group, but it, and it's and depending on how where you look from, if, if it's your child, you're very happy to be part of that group. But there's a smaller group for which new, for whom newborn screening definitely does make a difference. And there are kids that are now here because of newborn screening that probably would have died um, if it wasn't for being picked up at birth and having going in a very intensive uh, uh, medical care. But again, we don't get, we don't maximize this because the healthcare system doesn't provide the same high quality care to everyone. And if you're right. born in an, uh, in a poor um, household, you probably will be at a disadvantage to take, um, you know, to, 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 to use the opportunity to its fullest extent. Mm-hmm. So it's really about this, you know, kind of production of patients in waiting and then what happens after that is often kind of left up in the hands of the U.S. healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. So yes, the, the yes the patients in waiting they often just don't even interact that much with the healthcare system. It's all so the, where the healthcare system makes the biggest difference is when you actually have the true disease. Right. So when when newborn screening does what it's supposed to do, when it identifies you at birth with a rare metabolic condition. And then it hands you over to the healthcare system mm-hmm. to take care of it. Mm-hmm. We saw tremendous differences between um, the poor, often um, uh, Latino families in our sample, and then the wealthier um, um, white or African American uh, families in our sample. So we saw enormous differences in in outcomes. And it, we, our sample is too small to really draw causal conclusions of there. But there seems to be hints here that, and it's not just hints because we know this from an enormous other literature that um, you know access to healthcare if you're seriously um, if you have serious diseases is going to make a difference in the course of the disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's really fascinating. So, uh, Savannah, I wanted to actually uh, conclude our interview by sure. having you talk a bit about uh, your current work. Uh, so if you could enlighten us on that, that would be great. Yeah. So the same people that I studied for the newborn screening, they wanted to write um, an NIH grant for doing exome sequencing, mm-hmm. which is um, a um, clinical exome sequencing, which is an, an um, and genetic test, so we're not in screening anymore. Now we're testing symptomatic patients, and we're looking at the, the exome, so the um, protein coding genes of the genome. And so there's, there's 20,000 genes. It's about 1.2% of the genome, and it's sort of like the place where 85% of the disease-causing genes um, are supposed to, um, to be. And... Um, so they asked me whether I wanted to write with them um, uh, on an NIH grant because they needed a social science component. And so we didn't get that grant, but I got funded on my own. And so once I was in the door, I think they felt a little awkward to, to then push me out. <laughs> and so what I've, we've been doing is 
Um, we've been looking at the uh, the data board meeting where laboratory geneticists and bioinformaticians and um, um, clinicians sit around the table and look at the exome sequencing data, which they pro- project on um, a board, and then make the specific causal connections. They say, this variant in this gene is pathogenic for these patient symptoms. Mm-hmm. And the, the possibility is it's pathogenic, it's likely pathogenic, or it's a variant of uncertain significance. And then the alternative is that it's benign and that we don't need to report it out. So they decide at the meeting where causality should be located. Mm-hmm. So it's very fascinating. And then we follow a small group of um, uh, patients. We're, we're looking at how the geneticists who um, have have discussed these, these, these uh, the causality at the data board meeting, how they then communicate these findings to the families. And then again, in a third stage, we interview these families in their homes and see what they make of this information. And it's a very different kind of study of the newborn screening because all these patients are very seriously uh, symptomatic. So they have often um, cognitive disabilities, there's autism, neurological mm-hmm. disorder, autoimmune disorders, cardiac problems, uh, dysmorphic features, very, very complex Phenotypes, very complex symptoms, and and so what what I'm interested in here is like how these geneticists like locate causality and what are the consequences of this of the causality, and the upshot is that it actually the the process of locating causality is very varied and there's a lot of hedging of something could be causal and maybe we should report it out because you never know, hmm. but in the big picture of the of if you're living with a child with serious disabilities because there's most of the patients we follow our children, it actually doesn't make any difference in terms of the daily care. It mm. might give you a molecular diagnosis instead of a clinical diagnosis, but it doesn't really um, change the picture that much. I mean, and I'm still in the midst of looking at the data, but that's sort of the pattern that comes out, mm-hmm. comes out of it. And one of the, actually one of the really interesting findings, which goes back a little bit to the saving baby study is that, so for the for the child with disabilities, um, having a molecular diagnosis doesn't necessarily matter that much, but where it can matter a lot, or where it really gets a very different meaning and significance, the same causal finding is then in the uh, discussion around the reproductive decision of the parents. Yeah. Do they want to ne- what do they what do they want for their next child? Mm-hmm. And so something that is actually quite uncertain for the child with disabilities might become much more certain and much more influential and consequential in the context of reproductive decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very interesting how the genetic counselors in this case and gen- clinical geneticists shift, pivot almost from one stakeholder to the other in the same flow of the conversation. Like on one turn, they're talking about Oh, you know, for 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 your daughter, it actually doesn't really mean that much. But then, if you want another child with this, you have a twenty five percent of having this again, and so you might want to think about this. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's very interesting this kind of shifting back and forth. 
Oh, it's fascinating. I look forward to uh, reading more about that. And so I wanted to thank you so much again for uh, meeting with me here in Chicago. And uh, I hope all of our listeners uh, have enjoyed this podcast. Uh, If you haven't checked out the previous one uh, with Alex Stern, you should definitely take a listen, as I think these two discussions really do kind of form a really interesting thread about uh, genetics and society and genetic counseling. Uh, So thanks so much. This has been New Books in Medicine. 